All right, let's turn in the Bible to the book of Haggai. We're going to end it today. We've been here for several weeks. It's the third final book of the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, go back a little bit, you'll find, find Haggai. And if you didn't bring a Bible, it'll be page uh, 870 in the Pew Bible there. In the Black Pew Bible, page 870. This is Haggai. We've been here for a while. It's a short little book, second shortest book that we have um, other than, I believe, Obadiah. Only 38 verses here in, in Haggai. And I haven't said it in a few weeks. We've been going through the Minor Prophets now for a long time. And I haven't said it in a while, but the Minor Prophets are not minor in their significance. We just call them minor because they're small. That's really the only reason. They are big time important. They are really good. They are truly the Word of God. Um, and so they are major. We just call them minor because of their size. The major prophets tend to be Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and those, those bigger, longer books. But we've been going through the minor prophets, and we have really, really found them to be helpful and profitable and, and powerful. I know I have really loved Haggai and glad for us to be here. But today it ends, and we're only going to see a few verses, 20 to 23, here at the end. It ends with this big statement about a signet ring, about a stamp of authority, about a, a, a message or a branding, if you will, of God. Branding has become such a big word or topic these days, right? We've got to brand everything. We've got to brand our companies and our businesses. We've got to brand our our churches, branding is so important. We've got to make sure the colors are right and the logos are right and all of that. And I guess branding's always been important. You know, I remember my dad talking, and anytime, anytime we're talking about the, the, the high-quality product of anything, my dad would say, that's the Cadillac right there of refrigerators. Y'all heard that phrase before? Does y'all's dad talk like that sometimes? Man, that's the Cadillac right there of power tools, right? And what he's meaning is the Cadillac is like the best car or something like that. And so whatever this is that he's talking about, the Cadillac of it means it's the, it's the high one. And my dad, my dad talks like that, and you know what he means. You've got an idea in your mind of Cadillac. Now take that same idea and now apply it to whatever we're talking about. That's kind of what branding does. You know, branding used to kind of work on slogans and things like that. But nowadays, that's not even really as important. Because of technology and, 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 and imagery and all of that, now you just need a, a color, honestly. Now you just need a, a, an, an image, and that is all you need, right? If we're talking about anything like home, garden, landscaping, construction, and we just post up there that, that orange color, your mind goes straight to Home Depot. You know it does. Pizza Hut signs now don't even have any words on them. It's just literally a red roof. Pizza Hut's logo now is just a red roof, and you think, well, that's Pizza Hut. Starbucks doesn't even say anything about coffee anymore. It's just whatever that green thing is. <laughs> and I honestly don't even know what it is, but you know what I mean, right? You see that, and you know, okay, there's a Starbucks at this exit. They'll have coffee there, and, all, and that's how branding works. You, you, start, you see that, and now you know that there's all of that. That's how it works. And I wonder what the branding is for God. Before you get to thinking, I promise you, it's not a cross, it's not a, it's not a Christian t-shirt. What is the branding for God? And I hope you know that that's not a real easy thing to answer as far as something practical and tangible. And I hope you know that God's not really worried about his branding 
But if we were to say, what is it that we see and we think of God? Is it buildings like this? That would only be in places in the world that have a lot of money. I guarantee you that that church we just prayed for, made up of Algerians, Americans, French, and Mexicans, is not meeting in a building like this. What is God's branding? What is it that when you see that, you think, man, that's of God? If you didn't know, it is the church. The church is not a place. The church is a people. The branding of God is the power of God, the Holy Spirit power of God, looking inside of people looking like Jesus. So to the extent that we represent Christ, imitate Christ, faithfully live like Christ, God is seen. Sometimes that will be in prayer. Sometimes that will be in an all-out humility. Sometimes that will be in a turning the cheek. Sometimes that will be in a giving, a showing of mercy. Sometimes that will be in a declaring the truth. Sometimes that will be standing up for something that needs to be stood up for. Sometimes that will be teaching. Sometimes that will be in a a commitment to the word of God. But the branding of God is when the Holy Spirit powerfully causes people to look like Christ. And that is what the church is. Please don't think that it's when you wear a Christian t-shirt. And please don't think that it's necessarily the, the music that you listen to. All those things are all really important. We're all about those. We have some church t-shirts downstairs right now that we would love for you to have and love for you to wear. But God is concerned that his people... in taking on the identity or name of God, or the branding if you will, would reflect him. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we are to be imitators of God. That we are to imitate God. In the book of Haggai, we find the people of God in an uncomfortable position. They are living their lives seemingly by faith, but the temple is being neglected. It's been destroyed. It's not been rebuilt, and it should be rebuilt. It should be looking good, representing God and his people and his presence with his people, but it's not. So God starts sending messages to his people through the prophet Haggai. That's how it works. There are five messages from the prophet Haggai in Haggai. Let's recount them just a little bit. The first one comes at chapter 1, verse 1, and that's where he says, hey, consider your ways. You're not rebuilding the temple, right? And he calls them to this repentance that they would rebuild the temple, okay? The second one comes at chapter 1, verse 12. And it's after they repent and they start to rebuild the temple. And then you look at chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. So as they went from disobedience to obedience, you have God affirming and encouraging them to go and keep doing now what they're doing. The third message from God through Haggai comes at chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, 
On the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, and, and you remember that. He, he challenges them to remember back the way the temple used to be, and he especially appeals to the older people who did literally remember the older temple and how beautiful it was, or the original temple and how beautiful it was, and he gets them thinking that way, almost so to set them up and now leave them a little bit disappointed because the new temple doesn't look nearly as good as the original temple, and yet he reminds them that the, the, the temple in and of itself is not the comfort or the strength, but God is. And the temple is to represent God, but it's not necessarily God. And he reminds them that there is coming a day when the temple will yet be even more glorious than that one or the original one. That was the third message. And then you look here at chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. You're, you're following what I'm doing, right? Every time God is sending a message to his people through Haggai. Everybody, got, everybody gets that, right? Okay. He asks them this question. Verse 11. The Lord of hosts asked the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priests answered and said, no. Of course, you can't transfer holiness like that. The answer is no. Then Haggai answered, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it, it does. And you can transfer sin and filth and uncleanness like that. The Bible says that the reason why all of us sin is because our parents sin. And the reason why our parents sin is because their parents sin. And the reason why people sin is because our original parents, Adam and Eve, sin. And the Bible says that everybody is going to sin. If any of y'all are betting people, wait for the next baby to be born, I'll take you up on a bet that that baby too will sin. As soon as it gets old enough too. And there's people out there that still disagree with that. I'm not sure if they just like to argue or what. But people sin. And the reason why is because our parents are sinful. Ultimately because Adam was a sinner, sinned against God. And when Adam sinned against God, Adam fell into sin. The Bible says that that sin cursed all of the earth, and so we are now under a curse. We are in the darkness of sin. The only way to get out of that darkness, out of that curse, and out of that sin is through the redeeming work of Christ. When God sent Jesus to earth, Jesus was coming to reverse the curse. Jesus was coming to live for us in a way we had never seen before, a complete, perfect, pure, holy way. So we see Jesus and we think, he's different, he's not like us, he doesn't sin, he isn't flawed, he is God of God, he is truly God, and he lived, and he died. And his dying throws all types of confusion and perplexity and questioning like, wait a second. If there's ever been somebody that shouldn't have died and didn't deserve to die, it's this guy. How is he dying? And that's where the Bible's message, God's heart, and all of God's revealing of himself climaxes into, right, perfect, glad you're there. Great question. Why is he dying? Surely he doesn't deserve to die. He didn't do anything wrong. This man is innocent. The Bible even says that people were saying that. Why is he dying? And the Bible says, 
because God loves you. Because God doesn't want you to die. Because God doesn't want you to be condemned. Because God has provided Jesus as the way of escape. The Savior. Not only did he die, but he was buried and then he rose again to show, to kind of put that stamp on it. I am king, I am lord, I am conqueror, I am unstoppable, I am the one you can trust. God loves us. And that's the answer to our sin problem. You have this going on even here in Haggai. That was the fourth one. That was the fourth message. There's one more. It comes at chapter 2, verse 20. Now I want to point out something. That chapter 2, verse 20, so let's start reading there. It says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Now notice there it says second time, 24th day of the month. If you turn back to verse 10, it was also the 24th day of the month, and so Haggai really works overtime this day because God sends two messages. This is very rare. God sends two messages on the same day. So that one I just talked about, the fourth one, was just earlier in the day of the one that we're going to see today, the final one. So there are five in Haggai, if you like to remember those type of things. There are five messages from God through Haggai to his people. And the fifth one is the final one that we're going to study today. And it's a short one, but it does come on the same day. Let's read chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel. Governor of Judah. Now, this is the first time that he's really kind of narrowed it in. Sometimes it's been just to the leaders, and we talked about in some of the sermons, but it was always Zerubbabel and somebody else. If you, if you notice that chapter 1, verse 1, it is, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And it's got this kind of like spiritual leader and this kind of like civil leader, this govern, government leader there, okay? You got that. The next one, which was very interesting, though, in, in, in verse 12, was to Zerubbabel and Joshua, but also now to all the people. We talked about that. Remember I said the people go as the leaders go? We talked about that. All right? In chapter 2, verse 1, it's to Zerubbabel and also uh, to Joshua and also to all the remnant. Um, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 10, this one comes and it's a message for the priests. Now this final one is just to Zerubbabel. So there's some conclusion going on here. It's kind of a, a wrapping it up. This message is just for him. Governor of Judah, it says. Saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel. So God's message is now saying, I'm about to do something. Zerubbabel, you need to know it. I'm about to do something. And it's this shaking again. You will remember that that's not the first time that we've heard that. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 6, 
you hear this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. There's the shaking. And it is that place right there, Haggai chapter 2 verse 6, that is the only place where Haggai is quoted in the New Testament. If you've been here, you remember me saying that. That is a quote from Hebrews chapter 12, I believe verse 26. Hebrews 12, 26, that is a quote there in the New Testament where it is referring to the day of Christ, the judgment day, that when Christ returns back, okay, we're waiting on Christ to return, you know, after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he was on earth for some days, and then he ascended up into heaven, and the Bible says he is there now until the day he comes back, and when Jesus comes back, it will be the end, it will be the judgment for the world, and those who are in Christ believing and waiting, they will be saved, and they will go to heaven, and those who are not, they will be judged, they'll be scared, they'll be trying to run and hide, and it will be over, and there will be no second chance, and so this last day, that day, final day, is a huge day, and the prophets continue. Continue, continue to speak to it. And what he's saying here is, in, in that day, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to do something. And Hebrews quotes that. It's the only place that Haggai is quoted in the New Testament. Well, we get here to this final message, and it's similar to that. Again, it's not the full thing, but it is a shaking. And it's not, a, not, not just a shaking of the heavens and the earth, but it's, it's very specific about any throne on earth. Any kingdom on earth, any kingdom of a nation on earth, anyone that's powerful with chariots and riders and those sort of things, it will be overcome by God. The Bible makes clear that there's only one God. He is a king over and above all kings. And any and all devotion and worship and allegiance is owed to God. And in the end, God will make crystal clear that that is the case. If anybody does not love God, then they will be judged and they will be condemned. Everyone who does truly love God will be saved and kept and forgiven and pardoned and rescued, redeemed to be in heaven. Speaking to this. Now we know this. Prophets talk about it all the time. So what's the significance here? You aren't necessarily surprised by that's the message coming from this minor prophet here at the end. We see that all the time in the minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets. This is the ninth one that we've studied. We've seen it seemingly in every single one, right? If you were to summarize the prophets, the minor prophets, any of the prophets, if you were to summarize them, it's this. Y'all have sinned against God. God's telling you to repent. You better get ready. Judgment's coming. But you can be saved if you trust in his Savior, his Son. That's the message of all the minor prophets. And it's the message here now. You better be ready. But why just to Zerubbabel? That's our question here today. Well, I wonder if you know. In verse 21, it's to Zerubbabel. And in verse 23, it's to Zerubbabel. But if you notice, it always says son of Shealtiel in the earlier ones. And it always says governor of Judah, but here, at first it says governor of Judah, and at the 23 it says son of Shealtiel, and there's some significance to that. There's a reason why he's doing that. Y'all, Zerubbabel is in the line of Jesus. You know, in Luke chapter 3, we've got the genealogy from Mary, right, from from the beginning to Jesus. You know the genealogies, we talk about those a lot at Christmas time, right, the birth of Jesus. But in Matthew chapter 1, you've got the genealogy to Joseph, Mary's husband. 
If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, it's only, it's only like five pages away if you want to turn there. Minor prophets are so little. If you get to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, look what it says. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Does everybody see that? It's also in Luke 3, too. This is our guy. Haggai says several times that this Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. Here it says this Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. And so it's important. This guy at the end of Haggai, if you weren't paying attention, that God comes back and says, now you, Zerubbabel, listen here, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm about to dethrone every kingdom and throne that there is. He's speaking to Zerubbabel, and why? Why is that important? Well, did you notice who his grandfather was in the list? Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, or Kaniah, names the same throughout. In Jeremiah chapter 22, we're not going to turn there. In Jeremiah chapter 22, God is upset with them. They have sinned. And so God tells that king, Jeconiah, Kaniah, Jehoiakim, same guy, father of Shealtiel, grandfather of Zerubbabel, I'm taking the kingship from you. I'm taking my, my name from you because of your sin. I'm taking it away. You're not going to be on the throne. Your family's not going to be on the throne. I'm taking it away from you. This is happening. If you go read Jeremiah 22, very clear. This is what happens to that guy, Zerubbabel's grandfather, and this is a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because you know that through King David, the Bible has always promised us that we would get to the ultimate king forever. The Bible gives us that promise many, many times that there will be a king forever. One of the reasons, because you and I struggle so much in life, is we're not really sure who we're supposed to bow to. Do we bow down to our enemies? Do we bow down to our families? Do we bow down to ourselves? Who do we bow down to, really? Who is our king? Or perhaps that's such a weird topic that we are now living where we actually don't bow down to anything. When was the last time you were literally on your knees? When was the last time that you felt bowed down to God? Now you know we sing a lot that we're bowed down. So Maybe you don't have to get on your knees when you get to my age. It's kind of hard to go up and down. But you can bow your heart you can bow your head. You can literally surrender yourself. One of the issues in life is, what is my king? Who's king over me? And if, if you don't have an answer to that, if it's not God, if it's not Jesus is your king, then perhaps, listen, perhaps that's just so much of your struggle is you're not sure who you're supposed to give your heart to. You're not sure who you're following. And when things are all good, that's not much of an issue because you're just letting the wind take you. Man, when things are bad, that's when it hurts big time. We start to say things like, I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. 
See, who is king is really like one of those big metaphysical things. What's the reality? Who is over me? Do I know that, believe that? Is it controlling me, affecting me? Is it pumping life into me? Who is king? Well, the Bible says that God told King David, you will have somebody on the throne forever. And every time a king dies or is a bad king and so God destroys them or God takes them off the throne and says, get out of here, we're like, oh, no. What's going to happen? I thought we need a king, and where's going to be the king, and what's the ultimate king, and what's the answer to this life, and where does my allegiance go, where does my heart go, where does my devotion go? These are the type of things that people have always been asking, even now. Who's king? Then it was like a literal king. You and I don't really bow to physical kings now. Some countries still do. But the way of uncertainty and anxiety and struggle and and those sort of things in life, we're often literally thinking, hey, what am I living for? What am I living for is a question that we're worried about. Well, all of that's answered by king. So as the people know that there should be a king from David forever, when Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 22 had the kingship taken from him, God disciplining them, taking him off the throne, we're now in a situation of, wow, who is the king? What's happening here? How do the people of God have trust? So during the time period of Haggai, there's not really like that king on the throne through the line of David. It says Darius is king. And the temple's not built. So from this like spiritual presence, God's presence, comfort, the way it feels, the way it looks, the way it seems side, they weren't real strong and spiritual because the temple was not even there. And the temple is where God dwelt. It's where they went. So that was down. From a kind of official, stately, structural side of, okay, there's a king. We know he's a king of God. He's a godly king. That's not there. So now at the end of Haggai, you and I come to see, wow, there's a lot of uncertainty here. No wonder God speaks five times through Haggai to his people. No wonder God starts getting real touchy over, hey, your house looks really nice. You're more concerned about your own house than you are my house. You've got the wood paneling on your house, and you don't even think it's time to build your house. Remember all that in chapter 1? No wonder God's really pushing them because they need God. Life is so wrong when God's not at the center of it. The good life, as many Americans like to describe it, is so wrong when God's not at the center of it. The blessed life, as many like to call it, is so wrong when God's not at the center of it. In the book of Haggai, we have God bringing this to their attention. They listen, they repent, they return, they start building the temple. And here we are at the end, and he's now sending a message to Zerubbabel. So, this is why he's speaking directly to Zerubbabel. Because what he's doing is he is now speaking directly to one who will get right back into the line of the King David, the line of Jesus. And when you read in Matthew, and when you read in Luke, the genealogy, 
Zerubbabel's there. Were it not for this, were it for not for this returning, were it not for this message of Haggai, were it not for this minor prophet and the message coming to them and them hearing the message and repenting, remember, it was originally addressed, chapter 1, to Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. If they don't repent, who knows what happens? But they heard the message of God. They turned back. Now we have here at the end him saying something to Zerubbabel. Now, so far, all we've read is that he's about to do something. So look at the end, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel. Notice it was governor of Judah in verse 21. But here it's son of Shealtiel. This is the only place that he says only son of Shealtiel. Now he said son of Shealtiel a few times, but it was governor and son. But here it is only son because God wants us to think line of David, line of David, line of David, line of Jesus, line of Jesus, line of Jesus. God wants us thinking about is there a savior king coming? So all he says here is son of Shealtiel. He has us thinking about Jehoiakim because if you know Zerubbabel and you know his dad Shealtiel, you know his dad is Jehoiakim and you know that that was the king that really messed up and God pulled it away. So now we see the grace of God coming back to him, son of Shealtiel, and look what he says. Declares the Lord. And make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord hosts. Signet ring. God's signet ring. Y'all ever remember back when people used to date in high school and it was a big deal if you like gave your class ring to your girlfriend? Remember all those little teenage girls that weigh about 100 pounds would have that gigantic ring hanging on their necklace? Kind of like, man, I, I got his ring. Says something. Says that that's my, that's my boyfriend. Right? Well, this is a lot more than that. This is God's signet ring, and he tells Zerubbabel, I'm going to give it to you. This is a big deal. Now, you're familiar with this a little bit, right? Signet ring is not so much like, hey, we won a championship. You know, in sports, you win a championship, you get a, you get a ring, and people like to wear those, and now they're just getting bigger and bigger. They're like that big now. They're huge. But it doesn't really say a lot. It just says you won a championship. It doesn't say whether you're an honest man. It doesn't really say how much money you got. It doesn't say whether you've uh, been to school or not. It just says you've won a championship. That's all it means. It doesn't really mean any more than that. I mean, we could play it up like you went through a lot of practices, long season and all that, but that's all it means. A signet ring is something different. This signet ring is representing authority. It's representing name. It's why I started with branding. It's representing all that the person who owns the ring is. Let me give you a great example. Turn to Genesis 41. I think this is going to help us a lot. Genesis 41. I think you can all find that. You know, to be honest, when I say turn there and don't turn there and you don't have to turn there, it all just depends on whether I think you can find it. Genesis first book is chapter 41. I think y'all can find that one. Now, I think y'all know the story here. This is Joseph. God's people have ended up in Egypt as slaves. 
And Joseph is a special guy. He's got the calling of God all over his life. And in a horrible situation, Joseph doesn't pout. He doesn't complain. Listen, he doesn't rebel and become worse. The only time, he re- only time you rebel is when somebody's asking you to do something against God. So he's in a bad situation. It's not good. He's in this bad slavery and all of that. But he's not rebelling. He's living for God and doing the best he can. And so God prospers him. God gives Joseph this gift of interpreting dreams. And the king, okay, follow, the king of Egypt, they call their king of Pharaoh. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, has dreams that are scaring him to death. He's freaking out. They're crazy dreams about food and famines and years and cows and skinny cows and fat cows. He's having these scary, scary dreams, and he calls in all of his, like, people to interpret it. Nobody can. And somebody says, well, there's a guy, Joseph. And Joseph comes in and tells him what's going to happen in the dream. Let's start reading it. Chapter 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command, only as regards the throne. Does everybody see that? Will I I be greater than you? In other words, Pharaoh says, you're the greatest there is except me. Verse 41, look at this. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Verse 42, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. That signet ring he could use to stamp a document. He could use that signet ring to give the signature of the king. He was so high up, he could do anything. And when Pharaoh took that ring off and said, Joseph, I want you to wear this, the entire nation knew, wow, Pharaoh is investing everything, giving everything, trusting everything over to Joseph. It's like, it's like signing somebody's signature. And y'all know how big of a deal that is. You are not allowed to sign somebody's signature. When we read the story of Genesis, you know, wow, that is huge. This guy, Joseph, has so climbed the ladder, proved himself faithful, honest, honorable, wise, that Pharaoh has now elevated him to the place of the king. He's got the signet ring to show it. We know that that's a big deal. When we tell that story all the time in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, we tell that story. It's amazing, and we always emphasize that. The giving of the signet ring shows how serious it was. Now we turn back to Haggai, and there's another giving of the signet ring. But who gives it? God gives Zerubbabel the signet ring. Now, it's not literally a signet ring. God doesn't literally have a hand. He doesn't literally wear a ring. You know that. That's why it says, I will make you like a 
signet ring. So there's not really an autograph to sign. There's not really a stamp to stamp. But there's a life to live Godward. There's a life to live believing God. There's a life to live trusting God's promises. And God says, like a signet ring, And look at the very words after that. For I have chosen you. It's not in Zerubbabel being so awesome. It's not in Zerubbabel being so great. Matter of fact, this whole book would be an argument that Zerubbabel wasn't very much like a signorine. He's the guy leading the people and neglecting it. Then he's the guy who's worried about transferring the holiness and transferring the uncleanness. He's the guy that God keeps sending the message to, him and the priest Joshua. But the plan of God to redeem the world uses people. And it uses people as they look to Christ. When we hear in Haggai, That God gives the signet ring over to Zerubbabel and chooses him. Nobody thinks, well, Zerubbabel's the savior and he must live forever for he dies almost right after this. When we hear God has chosen Zerubbabel to be the signet ring, we are to look like Matthew 1 and Luke 3 tells us straight to Christ as the one down the family line of Zerubbabel, as the one who God has chosen to be the fulfillment and answer everything and satisfy God and then hear the message of God that you should get in Christ. When you trust in Jesus and bow your knee and repent of your sins and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins then you become the people of God. And that's why we read, Josh Wamble read it from 1 Peter chapter 2, where God says, I have chosen you and I've made you a race and a priesthood and a people. You didn't know mercy, but now you know mercy. You weren't my people, but now you're people, and I've brought you into the light that we would live for God, that people would understand God through us, that we would be, take it back to what I said at the very beginning, that we would be literally the branding of God, that we would be the signet ring of God through Zerubbabel, which ultimately means through Christ. One commentator says, when the New Testament traces the royal line of David, it is through Zerubbabel that the line continues after exile, culminating ultimately in Christ. It goes on to say, this oracle of of Haggai declares that God will restore a king from the line of David. He will overthrow the kingdoms and thrones of the nations to reestablish his kingdom and to put his king on the throne above all thrones. And Haggai shows us all of that. Now certainly I think we're getting that we're not to be too wrapped up in Zerubbabel. But we're to see how much of a key player he was. We're to see that God had pulled it away from his grandfather. That God had, and, and, and get this. We're not going to turn to Jeremiah 22. But when he takes the kingship away from Jehoiakim, you know what it says there? I'm taking the ring from you, Jehoiakim says that in Jeremiah 22. Well, guess what he's giving back? The ring to Zerubbabel, which gets us to Christ because Matthew 1 shows us that. Why? 
Because God's message is played out in the world through his people. And it's true that to the extent that we model what God's like, people get a glimpse of God. And to the extent that we don't, people don't. We may wish they were reading the Bible at home. We may wish they're listening to preaching. We may wish that they could see the humility of God's work in God's people, but they're not. So God has a branding. Do people get to see it? You ever been on a road trip and you said, man, I need to get something to eat or I need to get some coffee, I'm falling asleep, and so somebody says, all right, next exit. So now everybody's driving down the road and you're looking for the big sign and those big signs come up and you're getting to see all the things that are there, right? Oh, man, there's one coming up. Man, there's a lot of, lot of things on there. And you, you get to it and everybody's like, man, I'm starving. I got to go to the bathroom. I need something to drink. And you get there and it's like all the places you don't like. And so everybody's like, uh... Let's just go one more exit. Can you hold it that long? Yeah, one more exit. Okay, let's go. And it's like two, three, four, five miles, and you're like, man, I sure wish we'd have stopped at that one. And you're looking, you're looking at it, right? You're checking out what it's like. Is it enough to get you to stop? Is it enough to get your interest? Is it enough to pull you in? You ever thought about it like that way with the people around you that don't know Jesus? You ever thought about it like that with the people who don't go to church? Now, you know going to church does not equate to being a Christian. Christians should be a part of a church. Have you ever thought about it like that? They're just checking the branding. They're just checking the branding. The Bible says Jesus changes lives. See some lives change, man, I want to get a piece of that. See some lives that are just like mine or maybe worse or got no interest. I can be a better person without church than you are with church, right? We hear that a lot. We're just checking the branding. May we be strengthened through the book of Haggai. That it's not in Zerubbabel in and of himself. God comes through Haggai, says, listen, here's the rubber bell. I'm about to shake heaven and earth. I've chosen you. You're going to be my signet ring. Church, our lives are a response to what God's doing. He is working in and through us. Don't put this pressure on yourself. I mean, I've got to go and try to be godly. Lean into his word, lean into his truth, lean into his message, lean into what he's like, lean into the story of the cross and of Jesus, and God then works in and through us. May we be a faithful witness to God and Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this conversation about branding for Zerubbabel for the signet ring, for Shealtiel, Jehoiakim, 
Thank you, God, for a promise that you're going to shake things up. Father, we turn to you now. We pray that you would have mercy on us and forgive us of our sins. God, thank you for Haggai, the five messages. Thank you for the call to get our priorities straight. Father, thank you for the heavy challenge of a signet ring. Father, may we be your branding. May we be your witness in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.